When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Not to blow too much smoke up your ass, but I think the, <laughs> the book is amazing. Like it oh, really nice. is. It, it had that same sort of effect when reading some of Mark Fisher's stuff early on. Exactly what I guess the whole point of class consciousness stuff is just illuminating things that that just pass by in your life and they don't quite make sense and then suddenly this book definitely joined a whole bunch of dots well, i think the book was i knew there had to be like a lot of people in my situation obviously statistically you see oh there's this amount of graduates that are doing dead end, dead end but non-graduate roles but like when i actually wrote it and when i was living that downwardly mobile life working behind the bar and then when i was working in homelessness I didn't actually know that many people who were like in real life who was going through it. But like I knew statistically I wasn't that much of an anomaly, but I certainly felt, I've certainly felt like it for ages. But yeah, like the feedback has been good because I think it's connected with so many people who are in that situation, you know? Yeah. It's unintentionally a therapy book as well because it does connect um, yeah. with so many people's experiences that maybe that they had individualized the problems. And you do, of course you do. And we'll probably talk about this more, but like with me, one of the, I mean, the missing chapter for the book was on the family. That was what I wanted to write, a final chapter on class and the family structure and the nuclear family and about how, where I've grown up in Porthcawl, low middle class town, the nuclear family is, it's not fetishized, but the nuclear family is certainly like the norm, the trajectory of getting married, having kids is very normal. And so unintentionally just being it, going back to that milieu, you find you're just huge amounts of, you just, I, I started to feel huge amounts of pressure on not achieving those sort of life and taking off those milestones in a way yeah. that everyone else had done. And you do, yeah, you definitely start to individualize it just in, in a massive way, which actually has a negative effect on your mental health, as we'll talk about. Well, of yeah. course. You don't just individualize it because you do that. That's the culture saying it's your fault. It's denial of capitalist destruction. And England is slightly more conscious than the United States. What is economically actually has a dwindling GDP. America's is at one and a half percent, whereas China is six. But the idea is to make everyone feel personally responsible for a set of social attacks so that they won't rebel. Yeah. I've realized maybe we've just got a bit ahead of the game here. Dan, did you want to do a, a little bit of an intro just explaining 
maybe like an official blurb who you are and the, and the book you've written on? I wrote a book called A Nation of Shopkeepers, The Unstoppable Rise of the Petty Bourgeoisie. And people, when it came up, people were like, I didn't know you had such strong feelings about shopkeepers. And obviously, for people who aren't familiar, a nation of shopkeepers is a, a trope, I think, or a saying in the UK. Napoleon described the UK as a nation of shopkeepers. And then when Margaret Thatcher came to power in the late 70s, she would routinely talk about this idea of the UK being a nation of shopkeepers, about a na- basically what it means is a nation of small business, a nation of entrepreneurs. But the title is about the, the petty bourgeoisie or the, the lower middle classes, which is the, the class that I come from. And I wrote the book because a lot of things have happened politically recently, not just in the UK, but obviously in the US, you see the rise of Trump. In the UK, we've had Brexit, things like that. And basically the working class has been blamed for a lot of these sort of political phenomena, the rise of right-wing populism. But if you actually pull apart the statistics, the key, or at least one of the core pillars of these sort of political trends isn't actually the working class, it's this lower middle class group, small self-employed people. But anyway, I felt as if in the UK, people had got had given up on understanding popular conservatism. So when Brexit happened, when Labour lost in 2019 in particular, there was a degree of a sound like beyond the left, but people were just hand-wringing, like, how could people do this? Why would people vote for the Tories? Who would vote? Why would people vote for Brexit? Blah, blah. And they didn't really understand. And it's clear to me they didn't understand or a lot of the time even know who the people were who were voting for these like right-wing things. And I thought I'd grown up in a sort of a community which has always voted to the right. And they would have traditionally been seen as working-class conservatives, but obviously they're not working-class because they're the petty bourgeoisie. So anyway, I'm rambling a bit, but the book is about the two fractions of the petty bourgeoisie. I argue it's split into two, like a DNA double helix. And the first strand, or the traditional petty bourgeoisie, are the small self-employed. So that could be tradesmen, plumbers, electricians, brookies. I don't know what the sort of slang would be in America, unfortunately. Then obviously shopkeepers, hairdressers. A huge amount of people are self-employed. The, the, the self-employed has expanded enormously since the 70s, which is an adjunct of the growth of neoliberalism. I think when Thatcher came to power, there was like a million small self-employed people. And, and then just before COVID, it was more than 5 million so it's a huge strata of the population. And then I talk about the new petty bourgeoisie, which is this sort of ma- mass of white collar, largely service workers, often graduates, often in sort of metropolitan urban centers, and very often doing non-graduate roles. And yeah, I class them as the, the new petty bourgeoisie. So on the face of it, they're very different culturally and politically to the old petty bourgeoisie. But using Nikos Palantzas's work, I'm arguing that they do share a lot of core similarities with the old petty bourgeoisie, specifically quite chaotic politics, but mainly a focus on social mobility, like focus on social mobility. But the things that split the two fractions off is that the old petty bourgeoisie, these sort of small tradespeople, have often obtained a degree of social mobility often through their business doing okay or through obtaining property, small property. And their politics is influenced by wanting to hold on to that limited mobility. So they want to stay just above the working class. They don't want to fall back in. And then the new petty bourgeoisie, these sort of graduates, they have gone for social mobility that most of their life has been, they've been groomed 
or structured around social mobility. You do well in school, go to college, go to university, enter the job market. But then what has happened is they haven't actually, the graduate premium, which is what we call it in the UK, no longer really exists. So that people aren't getting to that, the heights of the professional classes, which they wanted to. And their politics, which is generally break to the left, Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, Podemos, Syriza, things like that is influenced by the experience of blocked or downward social mobility. And neither of those groups are the working class. I argue they're quite distinct from the working class culturally and socially. But that's the, the gist of the book. One bit definitely troubled me. It was like a closing part of uh, one of the chapters. You were talking about how maybe a lot of the people that sort of signed on for the Corbyn thing wasn't necessarily that they wanted, like some sort of socialist paradise. They just wanted their place in the hierarchy. <laughs> and it was yeah, like, oh, and, shit, and yeah. In retrospect, I mean, it was quite harsh. But even if you look at the current strike wave in the UK or the recent strike wave in the UK, which obviously has it's been interesting because there's been like blue-collar workers, the RMT, the, the Postal Union as well, the CWU. And then you've got the doctors, civil servants, academics, UCU. And occasionally you do see a lot of this, like the doctor, junior doctors will say, oh, I'm being paid as much as a barista. We're being paid as much as this worker. And it's, there's an implicit acceptance of hierarchy. We shouldn't be being paid this badly, but other people should. But then the thing is, that's always been the case. In like what the union, historically, there's a, a, a huge part of sociology on the different character of white-collar unions and the different reasons that people join these unions. In UCU, the amount of people who are just it's just about pay. I want to safeguard my pay. Almost treating it like a guild. I use the the term in the book. I think Frank Beck offer coined it. It's like utilitarian collectivism. So it's collectivism, which is about ensuring that we can retain our pay. And also, if you look at some of these unions, like the, I think the pharmacist union doesn't allow pharmacy technicians and things like that. So it's like policing the boundaries of ensuring that the, the professions retain their, mar- their status within the market. And the doctors have done that really well. But that's a bit of a digression. But yeah, when I was looking back at my own my own politics about me being a left winger, I, I do think a lot of people were motivated by genuine claims for social justice. Like I really do think people did want a fairer society and most people probably wanted most of the things in the Corbyn manifesto. So to raise public spending. Because it was a, a moderate social democratic manifesto. It, it's not like a it's not like a com- radical comic socialist policy stance. It was just about raising public spending really to the levels of France and Germany. But I do think a lot of the people who were attracted to it were attracted to it. Yeah, because we were polarized towards the working class to use as like a more social- a so- sociological term. But after hanging around with a lot of people and canvassing for labor and being involved in sort of unions, I do think that a lot of people don't actually want to undo Perhaps society, you don't really abolish a lot of these hierarchies. They just were a bit upset that they were down at the bottom of the pile as well. It might be a bit harsh, but that was what, that was certainly my experience. And certainly as a young academic, that was what I was, that was the vibe I was getting from a lot of the people. You see it in the renting stuff, I think a lot. Housing is one of the areas that that sort of downward mobility is most brutal. But a lot of those people will at some stage they'll probably get some inheritance, whether they're 40 or 50 or whatever, they'll probably get some. But that's another discussion. In the United States, as I read your book, I think it's quite different. I think almost everyone has been proletarianized. Doctors no longer hang out their own shingle. They're not individual entrepreneurs, and neither is anyone else. Everybody is exploited 
by some corporate entity or another. Now, doctors are well-paid relative to others, but there's a big hierarchy among doctors and the administrators at a hospital get paid 350 times or more than the doctors. And so that there is much greater proletarianization in the United States, which is why the strikes this year that are most stunning are nurses, educated workers, museum employees, all the 48,000 people who work for the University of California public education university system, the tech workers, the student workers, the teaching assistants, the adjunct professors, and the lab techs, they're all in the same union, and they wouldn't allow themselves to be split apart, and they won. But those are the trends in the United States are not only for blue-collar workers, but for intellect workers and skilled workers who have been proletarianized here. And I don't know what it's like in England, but in the United States, people that used to be independent workers like lawyers and doctors aren't. Everything is corporatized and the income levels have been shifted up so that three people own as much in the United States as 50% of the population. It's huge. And so yeah. that, like <clears throat> that in England, it, is that same thing that people who would have been small business people or shopkeepers are now, the shop is now Walmart as well as everything else is Walmart. The hardware, the food services, the dry cleaner, the bank, it's all in Walmart. And so those people have been proletarianized. Yeah, that's really interesting about the the academics. So the knowledge workers all being in the same union. So I'm currently in in UCU, which is the University and Colleges Union. I think that's what it's called, but uh, I think that's what the acronym stands for. So we've been on strike unsuccessfully for a while. But one of the problems I've had with the union is that essentially the the blue collar workers within the higher education system. So like the people. The sort of janitors, people working in, I'm trying to think, security and, and estates and some of the other things, they're actually in different unions. So the, like, there's an, a very unfortunate split between the sort of academics and the non-academics. And yeah, I would obviously argue for an industrial union that all be in the same union. I'm torn on the proletarianization thing because obviously in the book, I'm arguing for and against proletarianization. So proletarianization in terms of a lot of people have gotten poorer and more de-skilled, I think is obviously a, a definite trend. If you look at one of the things I say in the book, I think in the chapter about chapter two or chapter three about the, the small businesses, is that the tendency across the the world obviously is professional workers becoming de-skilled to every workplace is becoming more like a factory and obviously most people to lose money. So people are being proletarianized in that sense. What I argued against was the there's a tendency that I perceived from some people on the sort of British left to assume that getting poorer would inevitably and inexorably lead people to align socially and politically and ideologically with the working class. Because I guess one of the, the core arguments of the book is that proletarianization in terms of getting poorer is the experience of the small shopkeeper or the petty bourgeoisie throughout history. Because obviously Mark, in a Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels say that they, the small tradesperson 
is going to disappear and fall into the ranks of the proletariat because of the rise of monopoly capital. Obviously, that doesn't happen. But what I thought, what I think is interesting sociologically is it's precisely that fear of falling. It's precisely that increasing closeness and precarity and the, the, the threat of dropping into the, the working class, which has actually driven the small self-employed's tendency towards reactionary politics. So it's like Trotsky, Lenin, those talks about it's the frenzied fear of this class. So in fact, the closer they get to the working class, the more they try to distinguish themselves from the working class. So I thought that there was like a naivety where people thought that people yeah. were just going to sink into the working class and us, we're going to have this like big mass of poor people that's going to rise up. Whereas I think that, yes, people get poorer, but the divides between the sort of classes and the class fractions actually often get more intense. And it's, I'm trying to think of a, it's like when you see uh, cartoons like running over the top of a trapdoor, like the Looney Tunes or whatever. It's a bit like that. It's that running on the spot terror that actually has traditionally, or historically at least, forced the petty bourgeoisie into the arms of the far right. So I, I, I agree with the proletarianization thesis on, I guess, the macro level. Obviously, people are getting poorer. But I thought politically and ideologically and culturally, I, I think that we there was a danger in that sort of assumption. I, it was again, the book was almost writing against the 99% analysis. It was against this idea that we're just all going to be one big poor class. And it's actually saying that these sort of gradations and these sort of localized often conflicts between the two classes often get quite intense and, and split people off in, in different directions. Just to sort of summarize some of that, it's that idea that there is maybe an objective mathematical truth that there is just a small percentage of people that have vast amounts of wealth. But just because you have a sort of mathematical truth doesn't mean that we behave somehow like we're all suddenly going to get united. If anything, like you say, that loss of status is a driving force for so many different things or perceived status, right? It's a bit of a dark thing to think about, but I, I guess what I was looking at is if you look at the history of fascism and you're looking at the history of people who ended up attacking the communists, uh, attacking socialists across the world, a lot of the time these weren't, you know, the, the, the fascist movement in Italy, the fascist movement in Germany was a, a cross-class movement, unfortunately, and it, it attracted huge amounts of working-class people and it attracted a lot of small business people. If you look at the the, the, the rise of the Nazis in Germany, it was... They have a, a more acute understanding of the class character of fascism in Germany because they used to call it the crisis of the middle stand. It was this idea that the middle classes were in the depression in Germany. They were really suffering for the first time. And it's this huge, huge chunk of society and, and disproportionately massively overrepresented within the Nazi party, particularly mechanics, apparently, and office and small office workers and shop clerks. But these are, aren't. These are people who are just living in the same communities as the working class, as the communists. They're economically very close to them. So why are these people being attracted to the far right? When often Gramsci says it was about protecting your small status, it's about protecting that small property. Um, and I think, I'm trying to take the sociologist, Erie, John Erie and Abercrombie, he says that like proletarianization, you know, economically doesn't mean the person who's becoming proletarianized is going to become, you know, the working class is going to become like aligned necessarily with, is going to become a proletarian. I wondered in the United States, race is used as it was with the Nazis 
to give the little person a sense of being superior. At least I'm not black. At least I'm not Jewish, whatever it is. At least I'm not gay. Whatever differentiations they're very busy making, which you can see in the Republican Party now with its fascistic bent. How does that work in the British working class, how race gives status to those people who are failing and gives them a right wing twist in order to maintain their racial superiority so they have greater status, at least in one area? So my book has been criticized, I think quite rightly, for being like race blind, but it's a brilliant question. And yeah, so one of the things, if I had integrated race more fully into the book, then I would have absolutely agreed. From what I understand, this is a bit of a broader debate, but I, when I was researching the book about race, one of the problems I had was the use in the UK of the concept of, like there's this, because the UK is what, the 51st state, there's this tendency in the UK for people to uncritically just copy American sort of theory. And obviously America is in many ways, a, a unique situation in regards to race. And then it, it, like the foundation of the American police and things like that. And so I thought originally the concept of white supremacy, as I understood it, was really a way of consolidating class power in the, you know, in the US after sort of the Emancipation Proclamation, a way of splitting the poor whites and the poor blacks. That was how I understood the concept of yeah. white supremacy and how it was used to give, as you said, give poor whites this idea of status over the blacks. And I was hostile to the idea. Um, But the more I've reflected on it, there's a book called Police in the Crisis by Stuart Hall. And it's about the racialization of poverty and sort of moral panics in the UK in the 70s and the 80s under Margaret Thatcher and the use of the black uh, mugger as a sort of trope, which is a bit like New York in the yes. 90s, the Central Park Five and, and things like that. Um, so the folk yes. devil emerges, uh, a racialized folk devil emerges in the UK in the 80s, definitely. Um, and it's still, to an extent, used in the UK now. Black youth are always demonized. In the same way, when you think about it, the folk devil just changes day to day. So at the moment, it's like Muslims. Then it was previously, it's been like trans people. Then it was for a period, it was like Polish people. And, for a period, it was single mums, but yeah, it has also been black inner city youth. And Stuart Hall argues that the Thatcher's focus on the beefing up the security state, I guess the British version of the broken windows theory, yeah. sort of militarization of policing in the UK, which obviously led to the gentrification of the inner city. He argues that that really was pitched at the petty bourgeoisie, who's pitched at the lower middle classes, who's who were, had this fear of losing their small property and this like innate fear almost of crime. Yeah. yeah, but people are going to steal my step. People are going to yeah. break into my house. People are going to break into my business. There's this big thing in the UK about, there's been a drive about the shoplifting like epidemic, which is, again, sort of racialized. And what's interesting, it, it's a splitting off of the Indian or South Asian population who tend to own a lot of these corner shops with, the sort of black youth in these in these areas. One of the things I wanted to talk about in the book about how race relates to class and how it related to the petty bourgeoisie in particular is that there's this complicated dynamic, obviously, whereby the small shopkeepers in the UK and small business owners, a lot of them are disproportionately not British, like a particularly Asian. And a lot of the race riots that happened in the UK 
were against these small businesses. The race riots in Cardiff, 1919, and the anti-Semitic pogroms in the South Wales Valleys, and across the UK. But also, I was thinking the LA riots, the black rioters versus Korean Korean store owners, and the, roof, the concept right. of the roof, the rooftop Koreans and things like that. So, what I thought was interesting is that there's this weird dynamic out in class and race intersect, whereby a lot of these first generation immigrants are excluded from the labor process for various reasons. You know, they're not allowed, they can't get jobs in certain industries, like big mass industries for whether it's formal racism or whether it's closed shop practices and things like that. So they start small businesses often in very impoverished areas. And there's always been like throughout history, even when there was no racial element, the relationship between the small shopkeeper and the community it serves is extremely fraught. On the one hand, they have this patron, there's a relationship of patronage where they will give credit to the community, where they help the community, they're seen as a pillar of the community, and that's how they're written about in Richard Hargart, The Uses of Literacy. But there's the, the flip side of that is they're often seen as parasitic upon the community, they're exploiting the community, they're jacking up the prices. So what... I thought was interesting is like a lot of these, the racial tensions that emerge are in effect is class conflict between class fraction, whether you think it's class fraction, whether you think it's a different class, like the, the small business owners of Petty Grizzly versus the working class. And they've always had this very fraught relationship, but now there's an added layer of race. But I, I yeah, but basically, I don't talk about it at all in the book, but it's obvious, it's obviously a factor. It always has been a factor in the UK, particularly with, the, I guess, the white labour movement, the history of the Labour Party and the, and the British unions. A lot of them are, you know, very racialized, And it's also one of the reasons why this, the small self-employed are absent from British left historiography, because they weren't, oftentimes, these sort of minorities weren't involved in the labour movement because they were excluded for various reasons and instead they set small businesses. But there's also something, I, I touch on it, and this is a, a digression, um, when I was reading all this stuff about small business owners and small entrepreneurs in sort of places like Turkey and Asia, what I thought was interesting was the cultural aspects of owning your, your own business and the hostility to wage labor. This idea that, especially in places like Istanbul, a lot of the people who are opening up small businesses are have moved in from rural areas and have an instinctive hostility to this idea of working for someone else. This idea of wanting to own your own is seen as related to owning your own part of land and arguing that it's related to a peasant consciousness. But I thought it was really interesting. And obviously it's bound up with masculinity as well, like the idea of not wanting to be told what to do with someone else. But I think it's quite interesting in the way that there's a hostility to the small self-employed on the left as a rule. But then you think, does that mean that we think wage labor is, is good? Is that like the noble thing to be a worker, to be like a, you know, to be like a, the collective worker in the factory? And I think in the UK in particular, there is this fetishization of the idea of the ideal proletarian, but implicitly that is someone who is working for someone else. And there's this idea that, you know, that, that libertarianism that underpins the idea of wanting to work on your own, be your own boss. We're really uncomfortable with it, uncomfortable yeah. with the idea of it. But I, and I think, again, we'll talk about this, but I think some of the problem the left is having in the UK and the US, that it doesn't really know how to deal with that libertarian strain, particularly in the UK, because 
the, the left history of laborism is about the state. It's about the welfare state. So it doesn't really know what to do with a group of people who don't like being told what to do and who have this sort of instinctive dislike for the state. I wanted to tell you that in just this year, I found out about Bacon's Rebellion. You know about Bacon's Rebellion? I no, I don't. In the state of Virginia, there, most of the people came to the United States weren't pilgrims. They were bonds people or people who were released from jail if they would come to the colonies. And when they came to the colonies, the bonds people allied with the free blacks and the slaves against the ruling class, and they joined a rebellion. And Native Americans also joined because they were having looted their land and killed a million, 11 million of them. We called them savages and found them inferior, so that they got together and were rebelling in the uh, colonies in Virginia. And when that rebellion was crushed, they instituted racism, that black people were always to be found inferior, that whites who were semi-slaves as bonds people were superior in the basis of their skin, and native indigenous Americans were savages. And they instituted that in law and practice so that it was a deliberate division of the underclass to support the top. Absolutely. This is perhaps a sort of silly example of that, but I remember reading about an effective drama or like improv workshop thing that this tutor stumbled upon, which was like it would produce infinite scenes, which is just that you tell the two actors, three actors, four actors, that they just have a, a little bit more power than the other person. <laughs> and then you could just go on forever. And um, yeah, of one of the things that you make clear is that the sort of petty bourgeois is not necessarily an offensive label. It's a description of a, of a class. And you talk about what class isn't. And a big thing in the UK is like, yeah, do you eat avocados? Do you wear a certain kind of clothes? I just wondered maybe, did you want to talk about like your definition of class, why it's useful, and that it's not always necessarily about whether you have the means of production, as it were, that just that there's something much more expansive you've got going on, I think. Yeah, so like my background, I should say, I always class myself as like a Marxist, but my background in class was really... Bourdieu, so basically cultural, classes, culture. And because my PhD was in ethnography, it was really looking at how class boundaries work, uh, understood and are expressed in everyday life through accent, through aesthetics, through modes of behavior, what Bourdieu calls habitus. And then obviously I start reading, doing research for, my, for the book and beginning to think maybe I'm a bit of a bad Marxist because I spent so much time thinking of how class works in everyday life. Because obviously what Bourdieu says is that he totally agrees with Marx and he's classed himself as a Marxist, but he said that he thought that what Marx's view of class on this big abstract level, he said that's, I think the quote was, it's more suited to botanists talking about like butterflies and species, sort of probable classes rather than how people actually interact in everyday life. A good example of how I think class works is if you look at the two fractions of the petty bourgeoisie, the traditional petty bourgeoisie, the small shopkeeper or the small tradesperson, is actually fairly easy to understand, I think, 
if you're looking at this idea of a quote-unquote Marxist idea of class, because they're split off from the working class because they own their own means of production, because they own their own business. They're like the working class in that they've got to work and starve, but they're like the capitalists in that they own their own means of production. And hence, Marx says they're cut up into two persons. They've got this split consciousness in this weird position in the class structure. But that's the concept of class, which is almost entirely based on ownership, ownership of the means of production. And consequence, consequently, that broad understanding of class of being based on ownership lends itself to quite an expansive understanding of what the working class is, because obviously it basically can be anyone who doesn't own their own, the means of production can be working class. So that's why a lot of conversations I have, people say, I work for a living, I'm working class. It doesn't matter if you own, if you earn, you know, £100,000, £200,000, if you're really rich, I have to work for a living, so I'm the same as you. And it might seem ridiculous, but that is a, quite a common understanding of class. But if you look at the Polanzas' idea, the concept of the new petty bourgeoisie that he comes up with in the 70s about these sort of white-collar workers, I acknowledge this in the book that on, this is the class and this is the definition of class which upsets everyone. When Polanzas comes up with this, Ellen Meeskin's Woods and Goran Thurborn and others, they all kick off and say, oh, he's retreated from class. Because basically what Polanzas does is he splits them off from the working class. He uses a concept of unproductive labor. And I've had a big section on that in the book that I, that I cut out because the more I read about it, the less I actually understood. So I was like, I'm going to do away with that section. But he basically ends up splitting them off from the working class ideologically, socially, and culturally and politically, all these other things other than ownership. He basically says they don't belong, they're not part of the working class because they're fixated on upward social mobility. And because they're fixated on upward social mobility, they're highly individualistic. And like the working class, who he characterizes as more collectivist and not interested in social mobility. And all that stuff, it was seen as controversial. But if you read like all these ethnographies of working class, like particularly like Hoggard, uses illiteracy. And if you hang out with working class people in working class communities, generally speaking, social mobility and this fixation, seeing life as a ladder is not generally hegemonic in working class communities like it is in the low middle class and the new petty bourgeoisie. So anyway, he splits them off from the working class and people were opposed to it because he's breaking with the idea of classes being based on ownership of the means of production. So that's his understanding of class. And so the, the, I think there are understandable criticisms of Poulantas and also of my interpretation of it. Because people say you're moving the goalposts. You're basically saying this group of people can never be working class. And then I find myself having to defend the concept of class as culture, to defend the validity of culture. It's because in my mind, they are, these boundaries do exist. And even if someone is on paper or part of the working class because they don't own the means of production, how do people interact in everyday life? These things are important. I've hung out with a lot of sort of lefty political people and a lot of graduates who just freak out if they have to speak to someone who is like working class. <laughs> they just can't speak to you, can't talk to them. <laughs> and, and that divide is massive. It's so glaring and enormous. We're just, what, we're just basically disavowing the whole concept of class as culture. We're disavowing things we're seeing with our own eyes. And I think the important thing to remember as well, and I always try to use this as a trump card, is that Staying there's a divide between like white collar workers and blue collar workers, even if the white collar worker earns exactly the same or earns less than blue collar worker, it's really old. This concern has been around since basically the start of the trade union movement. That when the union movement was based in the manual professions or in blue collar workers, that the trade union leaders would say, We can't organize 
the white collar workers, they, like they're hostile to trade unionism. They identify with management. And there's all these sociological and historical studies of like of clerks and shop workers and their cultural life and their efforts they will go into to distinguish themselves from blue collar workers living in different parts of the town, trying to acquire property, voting conservative, having different family structures, like having more family and practicing contraception and all this stuff back in the day. And also like historically, if you look at what's actually happened in strikes, you know, it's the supervisors and white collar workers and things like that have always like broken strikes. And if you look at like the the miners' strike in the UK in the eighties, it was NACOD. So it was the above ground foreman white collar union that really they didn't link up with the NUM. They helped hammer the nail into sort of the coal industry in the UK by not going out on strike like they said they would. If you look at the current CWU dispute, the postal workers in the UK, it's really filtered into the in the popular imagination yet. But the CMA, the supervisors union, who were affiliated to Unite, were given financial incentives by Royal Mail right the way through the dispute to continue working and effectively to undermine the workers' strike. And they did it, and they've done it a bunch of times. So you're basically seeing white-collar trade unionists undermining blue-collar trade unionists or to break the strike. And obviously it happened in like the Fiat workers' strike in the 70s in Italy. The managers, the engineers, the, the, the supervisors, they all went back to work and undermined the strike. I think that's fairly sure that's the history of it anyway. But my point is that this divide that people wanted, this cultural and ideological and social divide between like white-collar workers and blue-collar workers, Pulantas basically theorize it. There's always, it's been there. And, and for me, it's like this exists. It exists with my own eyes. I see it with my own eyes. You can say that class isn't cultural or class isn't about identity and class isn't about these things, but in many ways it is. And if those cultural divides end up being mobilized by different political actors effectively, as they have been, then what, what do you call it? I'm actually not precious. When, if people think that's a cultural divide within the working class, if you've got a PhD or if you've got a master's, that splits you off culturally, but you're still part of the working class. That's fine. But the main thing for me is like actually acknowledging that there are cultural divides. There's some form of divide there. Do you know what I mean? There are cultural divides, but part I think that's part of why the new Marxism looks not at who owns the means of production, but exploitation and Mm. identifying with those who enrich themselves off the labor of others versus identifying with those who either produce the wealth that other people appropriate or are in a class of enabling that process like the secretaries do and the yeah. workers and so on. And they think, at least in the U.S., with the vast hundreds of thousands of people who are on strike now, there is this recognition that if you're exploited, doesn't matter what you call yourself, it's a there is a change which makes museum workers and baristas and nurses and all of those kinds of workers that are in part intellect workers and that have been separate realize that they're in the same boat. But I wonder if there is that incipient awareness like in the NIH strikes that we're all in it together. Yeah, well, I well, I, you would hope so. And I think there was a moment in the recent UK strike wave 
Where I did feel like something big has happened here. You had the rail workers, the postal workers linking up with the doctors, with academics, with civil servants. The problem is obviously that the trade union bureaucracy almost unanimously sold out the rank and file. And yeah, I mean, as it has done throughout history. Yeah, like I I didn't, what I didn't want to do was be like overly pessimistic uh, because ultimately like the whole point of, like I, I say in the book, like hegemony, the concept of hegemony is leadership. We need working class leadership of a mass, a mass movement comprised of all the different subordinate classes. Whereas it's the petty bourgeoisie, the, the new petty bourgeoisie, or even the professionals. Obviously, that's how like Lenin and Trotsky and everyone conceived of it. But it, I, the only thing I wanted to emphasize was implicit when they were talking about hegemony with leadership over the other classes was at least an acknowledgement that there were other classes like the peasants, like the petty that might be harder to organize. And I think one of the interesting, a good example, Harriet, has been France where the gilets jaunes or the yellow vests, this extremely chaotic, almost textbook petty bourgeois movement emerges with politics that are like yeah. All over the place. People like, which is literally love that. If you look at the pedagogy of our history, the politics are, well, they're contradictory because they've got a split class position, right? So some, they align with capital on some things and they align with the working class on others. But they have a, the Gilets Jaunes, like patriotic, anti tax, anti immigration a lot of the time. And, hist- and the history of the pedagogy is, in terms of the actual praxis of politics, you, you read in Lenin and you read in Gramsci and, and things like and Trotsky, and they're like genuinely scared of the petty bourgeoisie because they say, because it, it's what happens when a group of people are like incredibly angry and it's not socialized and collectivized. This idea that the proletarian are disciplined will go on marches, will go on strike, whereas the petty bourgeoisie generally take to the streets, resort to violence or very quickly smash things up when things aren't going their way. Gramsci calls them the eight people. He says they just, they smash things up. But if you look at protests across Europe, I think it's interesting because the working class are definitely mobilizing, but the petty bourgeoisie are as well. So you've got like truckers protests, you've got farmers protests, you've got the yellow vests in France. And in the UK, like when you have people mobilizing who aren't part of the labor movement, whereas this could be like anti-lockdown protesters or it could be like fuel protests. There's been, from the British Union movement, who are these people? What do we do? What do we do with them? Because they're a bit, they seem a bit nuts. Like they seem a bit, they're not like us. Uh, But whereas what in France is actually the union movement links up or linked up at least for a moment with the yellow vest. And there was arguments in some parts from sort of French socialists so what you've actually seen is the gilet jaunification of the French Union movement and the French Union movement realizing like we have to be less bureaucratic, like less dogmatic, more willing to speak to other sort of elements of society, more willing to create this broad class coalition and engage with like concepts that I don't I think a lot of people aren't comfortable with. Like people who are upset about being taxed, like a lot, people the small farmers are very unhappy about having to get down to like net zero and things like that. That is a potential point of conflict with the left who are like pro-environment, but obviously the, the answer should be, yeah, why should the the pressure be falling on the small farmers rather than big farmers? But I think that's the that that's gotta be the that's gotta be the key. And so France is like a good example of of how what I would say in the in the modern age, a, a crop a generally cross class 
alliance. And the interesting thing as well is by linking up with the, the yellow vests, the protests spread into the rural areas as well. And obviously in America, as far as I understand it, Harriet, Trump and the, and the right have gained a foothold in like rural, small town rural America. And the right is obviously gaining a, a huge foothold in the cities, in rural areas across Europe, largely because the trade union movement doesn't have much, or the left doesn't have much to say to those areas. So it's like by by trying to forge those those relationships between small producers and, and, and the union movement, I think we could get something quite productive. In the US, at least, the Trumpists are often small business people who feel robbed and who want somebody to blame it on. And they're just so angry, they just want to smash things up. So the January 6th riots, where people shitted on the floor of the White House and smeared it on the walls, and they they did a lot of antisocial stuff, stole things, is parallel to Hitler's beer hall putsch, Mm. or the, the movement got organized. That it's this just eruption of rage of those who used to have Standing in their communities, even if they had standing because they were in a factory that stayed in the United States and yeah. they had seniority and now they have nothing. Or the, the small shopkeepers of all kinds that have been absorbed into Home Depot or Walmart, that there is a rage. And Trump, like Johnson, defied that rage, that yeah, flaunting and smashing rage. And they understand it. There's that amazing David Graeber article. I think it's called The Center Blows Itself Up. And he characterizes Trump and Johnson as being like anti-bureaucratic figures. Yeah. And, and I think that was really interesting because obviously if you look at historically, one of the main issues that the small business owner and small trades people have is real dislike of the state, a real dislike of bureaucracy, a real hatred of the professional, the sort of being patronized by these sort of educated professionals who often the professionals and the state synonymous. There's this idea, there's all this work on small farmers. They don't being told what to do by people who come out from the department of whatever. And the interesting thing now is like, how, what's the left's response to this then? Do we, I've been reading Mike Davis today. For me, it should be a no brainer. We shouldn't be seen to be on the side of the state or the state bureaucracy. Obviously you don't want to consider cede any ground to any reactionary or racist opinions, but it's anger and hatred of the state and of the political class is obviously legitimate. Yes, and you have to reach them somehow. Yeah. Orly Hochschild has a book about that, a study of a Louisiana community, that if their hatred could be channelized on the left, we would have a powerful force. And they don't even look at how they're actually being cheated. The big tax cuts been tr- worth a trillion dollars that um, Trump enacted greatly enhanced the reallocation up in terms of wealth in the United States. But his rage and flaunting law was so attractive that people didn't look further. There is something about capturing the rage of a dispossessed person. Of course, it's like it's almost libidinal. Like this, like people are having someone who is doesn't seem to be 
even if obviously Trump isn't, Johnson, they're like caricatures of the elite uh. in one way. But also, I, I kept thinking a lot of it is about the left just keep making these missteps. In the UK as well, obviously, the Labour Party has been quite open. It almost reveled in how it's abandoned you know, working class areas and taking them for granted. And their vote has just been going down in these areas for years and years. And there's a famous and quote. And also kicking out Corbyn was a, a gesture of rejecting the working class. Yeah, ex- exactly. And, and there's a famous quote by a guy called Peter Mandelson, who was Blair's uh, spin doctor. And when people said, you're abandoning working class communities, he apparently said, basically, who cares? Where are they going to go? They haven't got anywhere else to go. But obviously, they stopped voting. And then, yeah, I don't think people appreciate the scale of that rage Yes, that is is out there, the the scale of that disillusionment. Because a lot of the people I came across when I was campaigning, the Labour Party, things like that, these are angry and very earnest young people, but who, by nature of being politicised, have a degree of faith in the political system or couldn't comprehend why people would be like, I I hate politicians. They're all the same. And they would say, no, Corbyn's a special guy. He's different. And I think he was, you know, I think he was. I think he is different. But I have to understand why people would be that cynical and that detached. And also realizing that most people, particularly the petty bourgeoisie, so many people have contradictory politics, politics which have elements of you know, things that are really radical, like anti-globalization, yeah, anti-elite but also elements which are react which are reactionary, like anti anti immigration nationalist. But the key is actually to try to how do you meld this into some how do you mold yes. this into you something that can be used rather than dismissing it. And I think a lot of people will see they focus on some of the more reactionary aspect, understandably, like I did some of the more reactionary aspects of identity politics that the right use and overlook the potentially really radical things that the, the ways the, that rage could be mo- could be mobilized. That's the conclusion I put in my book, I think, is that these things have become almost, not tropes, but these are things you, you, in a way, it's almost indicative of a subculture in that we will repeat our own slogans and they signify to other people, I'm part of the same, I have the same politics as you. And this idea that if someone doesn't vote the right way or if someone thinks X, they are like a bad person or they have to be written off. That's such a, for me, that's like a position which you can't hold that if you ever do any form of workplace or union organizing because you you will have to organize with people who you have often very little in common with. I was trying to get guys into unions. Good examples of what I mean when I say like contradictory chaotic politics. This guy is like telling me when he's in the 70s, he was in the National Front when he used to hate black people. And then he's working in this homeless shelter with no recourse to public funds, refugees. He's helping me, helping me trying to stop someone getting deported, like an African gentleman. He's basically doing the Lord's work. And he eventually ends up like joining the union. But people have, people go on journeys, you know what I mean? People go on, there's a famous British actor, Ricky Tomlinson. Ricky Tomlinson was in this, sort of widely beloved show called The Royal Family. And he's well known now as a socialist. But Ricky Tomlinson used to be in the National Front. He used to be, by his own admissions, a, a racist. But he, because the far right tended to recruit young, angry, disaffected men on council estates, whereas the left didn't. And obviously the KP, but okay, another bad example, but obviously the Communist Party of Germany 
used to actively recruit fascist youth over to the communists. And there's a famous story about Phil Paratin. So Phil Paratin was one of the first communist members of parliament in the UK from the East End of London. And he tells a famous story in his book. He sees the growth of the, the British Union of Fascists in the East End of London am- among working class people, and he's really horrified by it. And he says the Communist Party need to start doing more community activism, including stopping evictions, opposing landlordism. And they, yeah. there's an, an incident where the communists stop the eviction of a local family. And they go into their house and they realise that this family are in the British Union of Fascists, this fascist memorabilia everywhere. And obviously the family stopped becoming fascist and they presumably come out of the Communist Party. But he says that that was the key to getting people, to winning people over. Because I think like, it's interesting because we talk about the Battle of Cable Street in the UK, Oswald Mosley and the fascist march of the East End. And it's as if they're spontaneously attacked by the Jewish and Irish residents. This, it wasn't spontaneous at all. The Communist Party had been in that community organising, doing active anti-racism work, including de-radicalising people who'd been sucked into the far right. And that's what we got to do again. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, I do. Because also what we have to avoid, and the United States is very religion-plagued, is this idea we have the truth and anyone who doesn't is the devil. Of course, yeah. It's the idea that there is one truth is stupid. And one well, it's, way. It's like the Clinton basket of deplorables thing. And obviously in the UK, we have the Brexit remain divide, right. which is taken on a similar tenor of a religious thing, as Liam will attest to. People are quite into... If you voted one way or the other, then you're a terrible person. I don't want to speak to you. Um, yeah. This, this idea that it's like people say, I won't speak to my family members because they voted Brexit. And you're just like, what do you do? What? It's just a mad way to view the world through this sort of moral prism of people as yeah. being right or wrong. I think that's the ultimate thing with this book is that you are removing shallow explanations like the whole, you mentioned like the rainy fascist island <laughs> full of evil boomers the sort of there's a view of britain particularly on social media which is has this sort of very cartoon-like version of reality and i think your book very it's at least in the sort of digital form it's three or four hundred pages i'm not quite sure what it is in too long (laughs) but it's great like every chapter it was it's one of these things where i highlight my books and it, and the problem was I just highlighted too much fucking stuff. I was like, oh, man, I'm not going to have a f- nice, clear, simple questions. i got to be honest. Like, I, if for, for many years, I was of the view people are all evil. We are on this, like, fascist island. And a lot of that is, like, spending too much time on Twitter. Yeah. Obviously, you guys would have covered this presumably in great detail. But it, people being driven mad in real time by the time they spend on social media and it seems to affect, it's affecting everyone. It's affecting everyone, like the, Twitter in particular. But that, I, I always thought there was like a, a huge disjuncture between the people I come across in my everyday life and British political culture. 
and you do have weird, you you have people who volunteer in food banks who are conservative and things like that, all these crazy contradictory things. But I particularly don't like the intergenerational stuff. I really don't like that, like the boomer, the selfish boomer thing. There's a Jacobin article which calls that stuff like the socialism of fools. I really don't. And it's caught on a lot, this sort of intergenerational resentment. The postal workers I've been researching for like the last year, a lot of them in their 50s and 60s, when they've been on strike for, for many years. And most of them are saying to me, well, we're going on strike now because we want the young people who are joining the postal service to have the same benefits and same life as we had. They're, they're doing it with a specific intergenerational focus. Like we want to help young people because we feel so bad and they're not having the same protections as we enjoyed. But the other thing was like, if you look at any small town or even a city, people who... People, who, who do people think is running the, these institutions that are filling in for the state, running the churches, running the food banks, running the mosques? It's, all, it's people in their 50s and 60s and 70s, people who are keeping these communities going. That's um, right. And I, yeah, and I really didn't, there's a pessimism. People are really pessimistic about human nature. And I just couldn't get up. I honestly couldn't get up in the morning if I thought people were like that. And if I did think people were like that, They're in a more and more destructive environment as the UK has already crumbled in spite of its imperial pretensions. And the United States empire is devolving by the day. And so they are a, a very depressing time. And they either have to affirm a change or just be devastated by the end of the American dream the end of American supremacy, the end of all sorts of things without it. And there isn't, at least in the United States, there isn't a counterforce. In France, there's Mélenchon, France Assumise, France Unbowed. There's something that people can identify with, but there is no national movement here. And so people are going mad and also very depressed. Of course, yeah, and the left is dead in the UK, but it's political. Is dead. There's no, it doesn't exist as a political force. I force, yeah. And there's a bit of an interregnum in that people can see that the Labour Party is a dead end in the yeah. same way, presumably, people will see that the Democratic Party is a dead end for socialists, but nothing new has emerged. And a lot of that is the political culture of Labourism in the UK. Was people can't really conceive of it, it's narrowed people's political imagination. So we can't really conceive of how to do politics beyond voting, beyond you know, that canvassing every four oh. years. I think we've, all, we've got to go back to the, we've got to rebuild the community, we've got to rebuild communities, we've got to rebuild the union movement. There was a, an amazing talk I saw on Saturday about Trotsky's work on culture, and he says about, he calls it like the proletarian public sphere and how important libraries, community centers, working-class autodidacts, all these things are, how, how important they are for building-class consciousness. And, and, and by putting all their eggs in the basket of electoral politics, of, oh, well, just, we, won't, we don't have to build up these things in a community. We don't have to build up the trade union movement. We just vote for someone. We have to go back and, and build up these other things. We do, because Labour stabbed Corbyn in the back and the Democratic Party stabbed Bernie in the back. Exactly. And- with the hopes within the big party system. So we have to have an, an alternative. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to go, even yeah. though it's wonderful to talk to you. 
Yeah, wonderful to you, Harry. Sorry, I've just realized the time I've been no, uh, rambling we're, for like we're an delighted. hour. We'd love to keep you going. I just have to go. Okay, no, it's lovely to meet you. Thank you so much.